Hi, and welcome to this episode of Maricon Dreams. I'm Caitlin. I'm Jenna. This week marks the 20th anniversary of the death of Princess Diana. No doubt this week you will see countless stories published concerning her life, her death, and her legacy. Stories only possible because of a bastion of journalists, photographers, paparazzi, whatever you want to call them. The media has a complicated relationship with the British royal family and has often been seen as the enemy of Princess Diana from her first days as the girlfriend of Prince Charles to her tragic death. Her sons have vocally reiterated this point and have become more fierce about it as the anniversary approaches. Today we are going to discuss that double-edged sword, the relationship Diana had with the media. Ethical and unethical media have made modern royals accessible, relevant, and successful, but at what cost? We'll look at how Diana navigated this relationship throughout her tenure in the royal family. pretty good. It's a beautiful day out today. It is. Sad because it was a work day, but yes. other than that, you know, getting more towards the sweater weather of yes. fall. I know I am wearing a sweater, sweater today and I was very happy yeah. about it, but I think tomorrow's supposed to be like 80, so uh, probably not sweater. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah. Um, but something interesting happened to me while I was on the light rail today. What was that? Um, coming home. I was, so the doors open. Cause I'm I always, terrified. I always stand by, no, this is not something you've been terrified of. I always stand like at the doors. Mm-hmm. I never sit down unless like, it's like, I'm guaranteed that no one will sit next to me. Yeah. Cause that's a smart I, move. Cause I always get trapped. Yes. Anyways, the doors opened and this man walked by in a yellow shirt and it said treasure city. Treasure city. Yeah. And I was like, why do I know that? Oh my and God. so I Googled it. I was like, oh my God, it's that place Jenna brought me to when we were teenagers. All right. So let me tell you, everyone, our listeners, what Treasure City is. Treasure City is a landmark in the town of Royalton, Minnesota. And that is a town that is on, it's like on the road up to my parents' uh, cabin. And so we drive by there every time. And it is just, it's like a huge warehouse of everything kitschy you could ever possibly imagine. Like, it sells, like, crocodile heads that are, like, encased in plastic and, like, I don't know, uh, just a bunch of other crap. And it is the most fun place to stop. And when you drive by it, it's got, like, those, um, I can't even, what are they called? Like, those big things that have wind machines and it's, like, a man oh, yeah, on people. it and they're, like, doing the wave and they're yeah. dancing. And if you, like, know Broad City, uh, like, it's the thing <laughs> that Alana brings to work and, <laughs> and stuff that, like, is, like, outside car dealerships. They have, like, those in front of the, the thing and they have, like, um, cutouts where you can put your face and get your picture taken and pretend you're a pirate and it's an amazing yeah. place. So, free advertising. Indeed. They should give me... I don't know, a gift certificate. Maybe next five dollars. We'll finally have our first ad. Yeah, Treasure Center City. <laughs> hashtag, <laughs> hashtag ad. Just kidding. Yeah, not so really. I, I was like this. I was like, this is perfect. I was like, Jenna's coming over tonight to record. You can tell me about better banter than talking about Treasure City. Oh yes. Um, <laughs> oh man, that I I've been I haven't made it up to my parents' cabin this summer, but I'm now inspired. I'm probably going to. I'll I'll what I'll do. I will drive. I will schedule myself to be the one who's driving for that stretch. And I'll probably just be me and my husband. And I will all of a sudden just like put my blinker on and turn up. Cause it's like right on the road and I'll turn. And before he can stop me, we'll be at treasure city. Yay. And I will be, I don't know, buying penny candy. Yes. And picking up like snow globes. <laughs> 
It's amazing. Yeah. They have a, an amazing Google review. So yeah. After I Googled it to ensure, cause I was like, I'm pretty sure this is the place Jenna took me to. Yeah. It's Minnesota has a few places like that, that are really fun to stop by that are just crazy, full of crazy stuff. Yeah. Like my other favorite thing is Minnesota's largest candy store. Yes. So again, this is just off the road. If you're taking like highway, isn't it high, highway 169? Yes. From the Twin Cities to Mankato, it's a giant yellow barn, and it's this place, well, it claims to be Minnesota's largest candy store. It is full of candy. It's, like, including British candy, and I, when I I went there once, and I brought you back your favorite, like, um, those Aero bars. Yes. That they, bars. they're very good. And uh, they also have an enormous supply of jigsaw puzzles, which, as a jigsaw puzzle lover, that's two of my favorite things under one roof. And they have, like... 57 types of root beer and all this other crazy stuff. And so it's always fun. I've like gone on road trips specifically mm -hmm. for that. Maybe I'll just take a road trip. Maybe this Labor Day weekend, since I don't have any vacation planned, I'll just like drive from Treasure City to, <laughs> to Minnesota's <laughs> largest candy store. To all of Minnesota's amazing the stores filled, filled to the brim with amazing things. Amazing junk. Yay. Yes. Well, we can shift into talking about the news. Yeah. Not much news happening, just a few stories. We'll start with the most exciting one, which is in the realm of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. So we talked about it a couple weeks ago that they went to Africa for Meghan's birthday. Well, they are still there. I didn't even realize. I thought they had snuck back somehow. Yeah. But, and we just hadn't heard about it, but yeah, they're, they're still gone, which actually makes me really happy because that means we still could still uh, get that like airport arrival and not that she's going to be wearing an Sim engagement ring, but. Right. Well, it's similar to the picture we got when they arrived in Africa, mm -hmm. I believe when they're walking from the plane into the terminal. Yes. We could get a similar photo of them leaving or whatever mm -hmm. and hopefully looking very happy just and just, stylish together. Just glowing with with happiness or something. Yeah, so in the most recent news of what they've done is that they were traveling uh, from Botswana into Zambia and they were also going to enjoy a visit to Victoria Falls, which is one of the seven wonders of the world. Yes. And also pst, a very romantic place. If you yes. get my drift, Harry, you should, I don't know, be like, oh, look what just fell out of this waterfall. It's a ring. You should put it on your finger. I don't know. <laughs> that would be a liability. But yeah. But it would be it would be romantic. Yes. I know. I feel like he has so many I you know, if my, you know, boyfriend brought me to such a place like and I knew that we were really serious and we'd already talked about like marriage and stuff, I would just be paranoid the entire time I'm going to get proposed to. Yeah. I would just be like, this is a great spot. This view is amazing. Mm -hmm. Is it happening going to happen now? I don't right. know. I don't know. Yeah. And I was just talking to somebody who's saying, oh, their girlfriend, they're going to propose to their girlfriend. Nobody that anyone who listens to this podcast would know. Just like through somebody at work. And they, I was like, oh, is she a, like, do you have a plan? And he was like, I don't know. And I was like, is she, a, we're going on a trip to New York. So I'm thinking about in a couple weeks. So I'm thinking of doing it then. And I was like, well, wait, is she a person who would be interested in a public proposal? And he was like, no. And I'm like, well, then how are you going to do this? And you, unless it's in your hotel room, which you mm -hmm. could come up with something quite yeah. romantic in your hotel room. 
But I was like, you should really make sure that you're doing this in a place that she isn't going to like run away from. Like I always told, I told my husband the story of when I was like 10, I went to TGI Fridays for my birthday and I was super shy and did not want them to sing to me. And, but I also wanted a free scoop of ice cream or whatever you got for it being your birthday. So I told them it was my birthday, but I didn't want them to sing. And they still came over and sang to me. I must've been younger than 10. I must've been like seven or eight. And I hid under the table sobbing because I was like, Aww. don't do this to me. So, I mean, anyway, but Africa, I mean, like, they yes. can get it. They have, a, Harry is able to pull some strings and get all of the tourist areas cleared away yes. for a private uh, proposal. Indeed. So, yeah. So hopefully they, they have to resurface soon because um, they're expected in the next couple of days yeah, to be around. So, on, and we'll talk about that in a couple of stories from now. Why? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and the other news, which isn't really news, it's just kind of a, a future thing uh, that will be happening soon, is that Prince George is going to be heading off to school. Oh. And the big boy school, he's he's gone to preschool. I don't know, is that what they call it in England? Maybe nursery school? Nursery school. Is that a thing? Yes. That uh, sounds It that sounds, sounds British. It sounds posh. Yeah. And they are, uh, so I'm looking at a People Royals article right now. And so he'll be heading out in early September. And he is attending a school uh, that costs $23,000 a year. Whoa. Yep. Uh, but, you know, what some people pay for college tuition and, and do that, I mean, that's a, it's right. described as a, big, busy, slightly chaotic school for cosmopolitan <laughs> parents who want their children to have the best English education money can buy. And the school is, uh, is it like Thomas's Thomas Battersea? Battersea? Yeah. Anyway, I mean, it's exciting for him. I hope we get another adorable picture of him wearing a backpack. Yeah, like a first day of school picture would be so cute. Yeah, like you remember, I'm showing yeah, you the one yeah, of like the preschool. One. It's, that, I mean, that's a traditional photo I feel like a lot of parents take of their kid. Mm -hmm. I don't need to there to be a huge photo call for him even just one that you know will or kate takes on their phone it would be great yeah to post to instagram and say oh here he is and it's gonna be really nice and we don't know again if there's going to be a photo call or anything but hopefully we'll at least see we'll see some pictures and uh will and kate have said that they plan to try to take him to school as often as they can which is, you know, also yeah. promising for other sightings. So if you are in London and you want to be a creep, no, I'm just kidding. Don't, don't be that much. Well, of a that's creep. the thing. There's gonna be people probably waiting every day. Yeah, it, and it'll be interesting to see if they do end up being the ones to drop him off, or if they are able to like, if there's a spot. Like for example, at his nursery when in, in Norfolk, there was like a spot where she could like privately drop him off. Yeah. So I wonder if that will be a similar situation. I feel like you would have thought they would have thought about that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I'm sure. I mean, even just like you know, there's going to be a place where they drive a you can drive a truck in for deliveries, mm -hmm. and so even just that, like to pull in the car all the way in. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure they're going to take security seriously. So I'm yes. sure they've got some kind of protocols um, in there right. for for all sorts of stuff. So and at twenty three thousand dollars, is it dollars or pounds? It's a dollars. Twenty three thousand so. dollars a year. You know what? I think you can 
the, I right. bet the school, and he's not the only student paying that, so I, I bet the school does have quite a few security yes. upgrades coming. So we wish him the best as yes. he furthers his education, and we hope he makes many friends, mm-hmm. and uh, no one is mean to him. Yeah. you're a jerk. No bullies. So parents, if you're listening, your child goes to school with Prince George, tell him not to be a jerk. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, so um, going back to kind of what will be our kind of our main focus for today, which is uh, Diana, they actually announced last week that there would be a uh, new documentary released. Um, it was actually released yesterday in the UK, which was, um, let's see, August 27th, and will be released on September 1st in the US called uh, Diana Seven Days. And um, essentially what it's about is talking about the seven days after the death of uh, Princess Diana. And it once again features um, Prince William and Prince Harry talking about their experiences, including talking about, you know, when Prince Charles, you know, broke the news to them, their grandmother, Queen Elizabeth's response, that kind of stuff. And, And also some very harsh words for the media which we'll get into a little bit more um, as our main topic is about the media and Diana today. And uh, so it looks like another very similar, and it sounds like just a more, I would say, harsher, more somber documentary compared to the one about talking about Diana as their mother, which was a lot more, you know, lively and loving. Yes. It had a greater opportunity to be lighthearted because you can, you know, focus on happy memories in addition to the sadder ones and this is geared toward, you know, some really sad, a really sad week in their life. Yes. Which, and so also interviewed our, um, Diane's brothers and and both of her sisters as well. Okay. Um, and giving, yeah, just their kind of their experiences when this tragedy happened to be their life. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so I haven't been able to watch it. I tried to watch it illegally and that did not work so boo yeah yeah but again tune in this friday yes and when what is it on nbc nbc yes so and then it was on bbc already and it looks like it'll be playing again and again so if you are have access to the bbc which is i'm jealous of you um you can probably watch it. Where not there, isn't the BBC, this is off topic, but yeah. wasn't the BBC going to come out with like an all access pass for like non-Britons to buy that was similar yeah. to Netflix or like HBO? So they have BritBox. Okay, what is that? And do? BritBox is, it's not alive. It's pretty much like Netflix. So they have a lot of their shows. It's with, um, it's actually BBC and ITV Ooh. combined together to make BritBox. And so you can watch like, for example, you can watch the four part Pride and Prejudice one with Jennifer Elfman and, uh, not Elfman. <laughs> Jenna Elfman, no. No, 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 no. no. Uh, El, God, and it's five-part, Caitlin. Yeah, oh, Come dang on. it, sorry. Yeah, it what, is... I've only been watching the one pod? N- yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. It's to escape to Brighton? Yes. It didn't come back? Oh, my, um... <laughs> I have an aside on Brighton. Yeah, no, the one, Jennifer Ely. Ely, yeah. And, and uh, uh, Colin, Colin Firth. Firth. That's really what I should have just said it was Colin Firth. Yeah. That's all you need to know. Um, and then lots of other, you know, British procedurals and stuff well, is like it, that. But is it like, um, so like CB or like Hulu where they, they would have something immediately? No, after? they don't. Okay. They currently, so I follow them on Instagram. I was going to say, we should split a subscription I know. if that were the case. <laughs> I was, so I was really excited when I heard that they announced it and I was like, oh, this is actually great, but almost everything is kind of dated. And so I think they're, I think they need, I'm surprised that they haven't done more, but I think it's also because so many stations are now gravitating towards you just subscribe to the shows you want to watch yeah so they still can get all the money that they need yeah 
Well, I have to, okay, I have to yeah. go back to my aside about Brighton. <laughs> yeah. So, my husband loves Premier League soccer, and every year, I didn't realize this until I've now watched Premier League soccer for a few seasons. So, unlike in American sports with the professional sporting leagues, like, where every team comes back, so, like, even if they're terrible, you know, the like Cleveland Browns are still in the NFL, yeah. is an example. And on my fantasy league. Are they? Oh, God. <laughs> but, um, but, uh... In England, they have all of these different levels of soccer and the Premier League being the best. And every year, three teams at, that are the three lowest scoring or lowest uh, with the lowest points of their of their season leave the Premier League. And then the three teams with the best scores in the next lowest league come up. And so there's a, like it's really, I think, good because it, it makes teams um there's an actual threat to if you have a really bad season mm-hmm. like it's it's a big deal you yeah. could actually be kicked out of the premier league <laughs> um but this year for the first time that since i've been watching um brighton is in the <laughs> premier league and every time and i told my husband oh great i'm excited because every time we are watching a game and they mention brighton i'm gonna go i want to go to brighton <laughs> and he gets and so i've done that like the two weekends we watched it so far <laughs> together, and every time he just kind of sighs at me. He's like, okay, I guess this is my life now. And I've explained the joke to him. Yeah. Again, we're talking about this is when in the um, five hour Pride and Prejudice, mm-hmm. when uh, Lydia is like, the offices are going to Brighton, I wanna go. And they're like, we, you can't go before Mrs. Foster invites her. She mm-hmm. screams that. And so <laughs> it's a thing that I yell <laughs> randomly. Anyway, that's, that's an aside. But yeah, where were we? What oh, were we talking about? We were talking about the Diana Seven Days. Oh, and then I went into Britbox. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So okay, my point was, if Britbox were alive, I would have said we should get one. Oh, absolutely. But we'll have. To, I'll keep my. We'll have to keep our yeah. eye on that because yeah. I mean, with the internet, would I get it? Like they want to have their advertising be targeted, like because mm-hmm. I mean, when you watch British TV not quite legally, you see all their advertisements, and it's like, you're not going to go down to the Tesco and buy, you know, a two two bananas for right. one pound deal. I'll go get some KFC. Yeah. <laughs> In England. There, I have been to one. I have, <laughs> I have too, but, you know, you're not going to go spend your money there yeah. because you saw it on the TV. Right. So, I get that, but also, I mean, just we, give it to us. We have we money. We'll spend it. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, so the reason why we know that Harry will have to be coming back soon is because uh, on Wednesday, August 30th, uh, Harry, Will, and Kate will be doing a reception at Kensington Palace um, with all of the charities that Diana had championed and had been um, some of her friends and all the and all those groups that we kind of talked about um, when we discussed the last documentary about her work with AIDS, with landmines, homelessness, all of those groups will kind of be there for kind of a reception that uh, Will and Harry will kind of, kind of MC essentially. Yeah. Um, they'll also, uh, Kate, William, and Harry will also uh, walk through, um, it looks beautiful. If you haven't seen pictures, do look it up online, but um, there's a garden that's been kind of planted and put together outside Kensington Palace called the um, Diana Garden. And it's gorgeous. It's like all, it's like white and green and there's like palm trees and it's just beautiful. And it's, um, it was done, um, by the gardener who used to work and still works at Kensington Palace while Diana was living there. And, um, yeah, it's just a really beautiful thing, um, to look at. So definitely look at those up online and it'll, 
it's the day before her anniversary so I think it'll be hopefully a really joyful event about celebrating her legacy uh, but also a little bit somber especially when they kind of go through that the garden because I would probably be bawling my eyes out yeah um if the gardener's name, uh, and I have this in notes from, oh, from our documentary, because yep. he actually premiered, or he appeared on the documentary mm -hmm. that we discussed a couple episodes ago. His name's Graham Dillamore, and he talked in the end of that documentary about how, why, how he came up with the scheme, and that a lot of Diana's most iconic looks were this cream, and she was seen as this white rose, and mm -hmm. she had such creamy skin and all these things, and so tried to evoke her style and just her look and her beauty through this garden and mm -hmm. so it is stunningly beautiful if you look at the the pictures online i wish i could go in person yes. but alas i don't think i could afford a ticket right now <laughs> well and i think i have one thing before we dive into our main topic i wanted to make mm -hmm. a brief correction um based on our discussion of the prince in me i hope it didn't come off this way but i can imagine how someone might have taken it i was talking about um the time when Prince Edvard was asking Paige Edvard. to take her top off and I said something about like oh we've never seen him do this before not even with those she's my sorry my oh, no. notebook keeps falling not even with those girls wearing those skimpy shorts okay that could be taken as me saying that yeah when a lady's wearing skimpy shorts go ahead and ask her to take her tops off no don't do that I think really what I was getting at is the girls in the skimpy shorts were I would say it would be more likely they would take their top off because they were like straight up making out with him and like all over him and stuff. Still, you know, he can ask them and they can say no, no, sir. But yeah, anyway, just wanted to make that clear. I did not want to imply even accidentally that it's okay to ask a lady to take her top off because she happens to be wearing hot pants that she looks good in. Don't yeah. do it. Don't be a creep. Nope, nope, nope. Anyway. All right. <laughs> Shifting gears back into our main topic. Um, so we're going to take time today to talk a little bit about uh, Diana's relationship with the press. Obviously there are a million books written, we'd say this every week, books written, documentaries out there about Diana during her life and her death and the conspiracy theories and all of that jazz. And we can't and don't want to cover all of that in our podcast. I want to be able to go to bed like before midnight tonight <laughs> and it's 7 30 ish right now so you know we we decided to kind of cut out a narrow a more narrow topic out of her larger life and give you perspective without giving you all of it yeah every minute detail, <laughs> every detail yes. so we broke this down into kind of some eras in her life and we're going to be covering just her relationship with the press and i guess the royal family's relationship with the press kind of in the same same time um, at, during these important eras. And so we're just going to be talking about a few of the more uh, important stories or the stories that spoke, I think, caused us to say, oh, yeah, this is pretty emblematic of what was going on in her life. So we're not going to go into everything. Again, if there's a topic we're not going to discuss and you want us to talk about it in a future episode, feel free to write us. But for now, we're just going to try to, try to keep this um, focused on her relationship with the press and how it evolved over time. So I'm going to start by talking about the royal family's background with the press kind of in general. And this is a very, again, a very high level overview. As you know, you know, back in the day, let's go back to before Queen Elizabeth is on the throne. 
well, there's no TV. There's no internet. There's no digital cameras. Stop. This is scary. I know. I know. It's terrifying. I mean, (laughs) the royal family can really... It has complete control almost over the narrative it wants to get out there. Now, negative stories do get out there. You can see with Edward VIII out running around and his, you know, more philandering predecessors. You know, there was always gossip out there, but the newspapers really weren't the ones reporting on it all that often. You know, there were some papers published by Republicans and those were, again, the people who were like, let's get rid of the whole institution of the monarchy. And a lot of times people didn't, they weren't always going to believe it because they saw anything they published as like something that's being published to achieve their ends. So not necessarily more propaganda, maybe. But for the large papers out there in London, of which there are, it seems like a million, they weren't really uh, reporting on anything to do with the royal family unless the royal family wanted them to. In the 1940s, uh, towards the end of King George VI's uh, reign, it started to change a little bit more. The British royal family was starting to believe that they needed to become more accessible. Obviously, so, you know, in the early 20th century, there's a lot of revolutions happening with a lot of monarchies. There's everything that happened in Russia, which was not good for the sitting royal family there. And so, you know, everyone in England, there was a lot of... At, in the 1940s, there was a huge you know, labor movement in England, and everyone always was like, communists, socialists, all this scariness, or what they thought was scary. And so they, they were well aware of the fact that the monarchy was kind of an outdated institution and that there were a lot of eyes on it. And so they decided, well, if we make ourselves more accessible, we can humanize ourselves, which I think worked for a large part. I mean, there's a difference between talking about your king in the abstract when all you've ever seen him on is money and stamps and seeing your king when you go to a movie and there's some there's a newsreel of his coronation. I mean, that's like, oh my gosh, I was there. I was part of it. I could see it happen. And it's, you know, going to make the the average person who's not invited to Westminster Abbey <laughs> feel a little bit more connected with the monarchy. Really, this, uh, again, started to take off even in, to a greater extent, starting with uh, Elizabeth's coronation, which most of you know, because I'm assuming you've watched The Crown by now, uh, her Hopefully. coronation is televised. And that, again, is taking that same hope to bring the crown to the people to make it more accessible. And it's really allowing people to participate in this institution. You know, The Crown does talk about how, like, Prince Philip was instrumental in getting it televised. And that would make sense from that perspective because he comes from a family, a royal family that was no longer royal at the point when he married Elizabeth. So he had seen the the rise and fall of a royal house, and he kind of realized that you know you have to be you have to kind of keep in step with modern times to not be seen as an unnecessary dinosaur of an institution. <laughs> also, in the Crown, you start to see the gossip papers uh, take. The royal family uh, take into consideration that they can they can that they sell newspapers and that gossip about them sells newspapers. Really, when Margaret, uh, Princess Margaret, and Group Captain Pete Townsend of the Who, just the kidding, Who. <laughs> um, when they were photographed uh, leaving the coronation and she was picking a feather oh, yeah. off of his jacket, that originally was going to be published in England. The 
most of the editors refused to print the story. Then it was printed in the United States, and they saw, ooh, that's doing a lot of good over there. And that kind of opened the floodgates. It was more like, okay, well, they're publishing it, so why why can we? Right. You know? Oh, those loose it's, Yankees. Yeah, exactly. And so then also the, the story of uh, Princess Margaret and Group Captain Townsend was such... I mean, it was they were sold kind of as doomed lovers and so and also the press played a big role in like create causing the narrative to get bigger and bigger so like one half of the press would say like publish op-eds from like religious leaders saying like it's a disgrace that she's even considering reaching the sanctity of marriage how like all of this stuff like have we no morals Think of the children. Let's clutch our pearls together. All of that. And then another side would be saying, go for it. You're like, go for it, Margaret. Like, you found love. Take it. Run. Run away. Elope. Do what you have to do. And so that, and that created a lot of vitriol and a lot of interest. And again, it moved a lot of papers. Jumping ahead. We know how that story resolved. They right. did not get married, but... Jumping ahead, you know, the queen, again, is bringing herself to the people and with her first Christmas broadcast in 1957. Um, so not only, again, she's coming into people's living rooms on an annual base, basis rather than just at the large events. And the press seems to be getting more and more bold, I will say. In 1964, um, a paparazzo photographed Margaret in a bathing suit and then tried to sell the photo. And the palace instructed editors not to buy the, from that person. And they listened to the palace. Mm -hmm. So now imagine, I mean, which I'll touch on a little bit later, you know, just a picture of a royal in a bathing suit. Seems to be a common occurrence. Yeah, <laughs> well, again, but what are, what are you supposed to do? Like, you, you're going to... Uh, on holiday, you're going oh, right. to be. No, what I'm not blaming. Well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's just it is kind of like okay. Well, the paparazzi paparazzi is like well, they're out in public and they're a public figure. I'm going to take a picture of them, and the palace is kind of like well, wait, what? Why is how is this newsworthy? What's the point? And so there's the fight between what's newsworthy and what's right to privacy, and mm -hmm. you know, your right to just go chill on the beach without getting it published everywhere. Right. You know. Kind of thinking of what we'll be talking in, in more depth about being Diana's relationship with the press. Prince Charles had a, an interesting relationship with the press himself. Uh, besides from when he was a young kid, and he was, I'm assuming, treated quite like we treat Prince George. I mean, it was just, look at this milestone. But when he was in his uh, 20s, he was photographed a lot while he was doing very sporty activities. So like windsurfing and uh, skiing. And so <laughs> I saw this in two different sources. They would describe Charles as an action man, <laughs> which, which now, like, I mean, I'm sure he's very, you know, I've seen him ski. I've seen photos right. of him ski, but I don't look at him now and think action man. You know, that's, uh, that's something that he's doing and he's being portrayed as this young, you know, fit, person that most eligible bachelor and they're kind of Dude. setting him up to be that like oh not only is he a prince he can windsurf which i can't windsurf that looks really hard yeah. um but yeah and around that time the tabloid we've all heard of news of the world <laughs> is purchased and that really i mean is emblematic of what's happening there's just more and more tabloids coming out at this time and they're kind of getting closer and closer to the line, whatever the line is. And sometimes the line is moving. 
because it'll be like, no, don't photograph, you know, don't buy the, the photo of, or don't run the photo of Margaret picking the feather off group Captain Townsend. Okay, well, now the line's moved. Now that's, that's important. We want to publish it. And so then, no, don't publish a bathing suit photo of her. Well, you know, that's what happens to Diana. And it's, you know, it's kind of crazy. So mm -hmm. that's the relationship. I mean, during all this time, I think it's more like the royal family, it, seem, they, it seems like they're kind of scrambling to keep up with things. They're not controlling the narrative. They're not very good at this point at using the press as a tool. They're, anything that, anytime that they get what we would call good press, it seems kind of accidental or it's like good news that they would usually publish, publicize themselves. Right. But they're not really being much good at, you know, spinning stories to meet their narrative or, you know, getting out in front of certain stories. They seem to just be relying on this idea that if they ask nicely or order somebody not to do it, that the editors aren't going to do it. But the problem with that is once one paper publishes it, all the other ones are going to want to do it as well because they're the ones who don't have the story. It's kind of like, um, you know, like stores that started opening on Black Friday. Yeah. So like the earlier and earlier. So like it used to be back in our day. Yeah. I mean, like tar I worked as a cashier at Target when I was 16. And I mean, I remember I had to be at work on Black Friday. I was opening and I had to be there at five. 30 or so. Like, I had to be at my register at 5.30 because the doors would open at 6. Well, they open at midnight or, like, then they open like to nine. midnight on on uh, the Black Friday and now they're, like, 9 p.m. or 6 p.m. on Thanksgiving Day. It's just creeping and it's all because, you know, once one store did it, they all were like, oh, we're all losing out because people who are going to be shopping on Thanksgiving aren't aren't going to be able to go to our store. And I feel like the one store, again, we're going into the Minnesota minutia here, but like Mills Fleet Farm, like had a bunch of, which I would shop there. If you were like Jenny of one store to shop at for the rest of your life, that would be it. Cause they sell really good peanut brittle and Carhartt jackets. I don't know. But, um, they, they had like a bunch of ads that were like, we don't, we refuse to participate in this, which is great. But I mean, there's still all, all the other stores are still doing it. So that's my, that's my metaphor corner here. <laughs> that was a good one. Yeah. And so it's, uh, it's kind of like that. Once the floodgates are opened, the press is kind of pushing their boundaries and the royal family doesn't really know how to set those boundaries anymore. Cause once the floodgates opened, they were kind of scrambling to, you know, patch up the dam rather than. Yeah. And I think that they thought that if, yeah, like you said, if they asked nicely and, and all that, but I think they just thought that the news would just respect their position and be grateful for them doing that, giving them any news at all in the sense like, Oh, I'm, I'm at a public engagement or, right. Or I'm, you know, here's a family photo or my Christmas address. And it's like, well, there's also on, on, you know, the other end, there's also the consumer. The, everyone right. wanted more. I yeah. still want more. I know. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> and that's why when I'm, we're talking yeah. about like Prince George going to school. Yeah. Like, it's terrifying for a little kid to get bombarded with all this attention yes. when he doesn't understand it quite. Like, you know, he's old enough now that he probably has been, his position has been explained to him. But he, I don't know that you can ever really come to terms with that. No. And so, um, 
just like thinking about showing up at your first day of school when you're so excited and you just want to show up your show off your light up sneakers, which he probably won't be able to wear, right. but because the press would be like, oh, look at that with his fancy shoes. But I mean, they already are like that. Right. I mean, he's already wearing Italian leather. So yeah, <laughs> get some light up Italian leather loafers. Aww. He deserves it. He does. But, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I would love to see pictures of him with his backpack. He's so yes. cute. But at the same time, like, I don't, I'm not entitled to see pictures of him. No. I'm grateful for what I get. I wish there were more. But I also, wish that they were okay with being more open about their lives. But I, then I have to think about, like, would I be okay with that? And right. It's like, no. No. No, absolutely not. I would never want my children to have to. I would understand, like, I know what position that they're in. And, you know, yeah. I, there's an ultimate larger goal and life and everything but yeah also letting them have a sense of normalcy and letting them grow into the people that they're supposed to be versus like these yeah these photo yeah or i mean there's a photos that don't really help them grow confuse them scare them you know yeah and but. also you know there's a thing about you know little kids dressing themselves for school like think yeah. about that how many people do you know of, or you've heard you've done it, or you always hear stories of people who they go through, or little kids go through a phase where they want to do it themselves. They want to pick out their clothes. They want to wear something absolutely insane. Like I, there was a time when I just refused to take off my ballerina tutu. I was not in dance class. I don't know who the heck gave it to me, but I just like was wearing that. And then I also was wearing like my hockey helmet around the house. And if I could have, I would have worn it. I think my mom made me take off the helmet to go to school. But I was still, I was walking around in a tutu. Yeah. Just a normal time. Like, to think of that where, like, you know, George can't do that, you know, and his parents can't let him necessarily express himself because that's kind of a normal thing where yeah. kids go through phases, you right. know. And so it's hard that, and I think it's kind of a normal part. It's developing your own sense of self and your own creativity and your own sense of style. And it's important. And so if he has to always be dressed you know, perfectly to be in this curated image or whatever. It's kind of sad. Yeah. Just because a paparazzi might be there also. It's like not even guaranteed mm -hmm. that they will be. So, yeah. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that's the background. We'll yeah. dive in and we're going to talk, we're not talking much about Diana's life as a young woman until before pre-engage, we're going to talk about like engagement. Yes. And stuff. So why don't you take us into that? Yeah. Role? So, um, yep. So we're going to talk a little bit, uh, mostly about, yes, her, her early, her beginning, obviously she and Prince Charles did not date for very long before they announced an engagement. They were maybe together for like nine months or so. Yeah. I um, think she said she, they went on 13 dates before yeah. they got engaged. Right. Which, um, hmm. but kind of the first story and most of these stories actually come from, um, a paparazzo named Arthur Edwards who works for the sun. Okay. And uh, he's, he, funny thing is they, he has actually lots of, he's spent a lot of time with Princess Diana. He did oversee tours with her. Um, he's actually spent a lot of time with her in like the sense like they took photos together and were seen together chatting and stuff. So it was kind of, it was really weird to kind of hear his stories and also know that he was also kind of chasing her at the same time. Yeah. So, uh, but he was kind of the first person who actually got, was kind of her first experience with the media, um, which was in 1980 at a polo match that Prince uh, Charles uh, was participating in. And um, people 
there was rumors that he had arrived with a woman named Diana Spencer. Um, no one knew who this woman was at all, didn't know what she looked like or anything, at least the media that was there. And um, Edwards, he noticed that there was a woman wearing a necklace with a D on it. And so he was like, Diana? Mm-hmm. So he actually went up to her, and it was Princess Diana, and asked her, um, you know, are you Princess Diana? And she... Or are she, you Lady Diana Yeah, Spencer? Yes, right. <laughs> yeah. How did you know? Yeah. Uh, time traveler? And she did... Yeah, and she said that she did know who... That she was, uh, you know, Diana Spencer. And he he asked if he could take a picture of her. And okay. she, she just said yes. And I mean, she posed for him and whatnot, and... Uh, he took the photo, and uh, he never published the photo, though, because he actually thought she was much older. He, okay. was actually, he was actually, he said, kind of creeped out that she was so much younger oh. than uh, Prince Charles. Yeah. And that he was like, I didn't want to publish a photo of a teenager. Yeah, especially if the rumors were not particularly substantiated at the time. Right. Like, she was rumored to be the girlfriend. And yes. yeah, if it's, yeah, if you're going to randomly publish an 18-year-old's photo mm-hmm. and link her to him... Yeah, so he ne- he said he put the photo in a drawer and he never published it. Um, obviously, they continued to date, and uh, he followed her out to Balmoral while they were out. Prince Charles was fishing, and she was dressed up, looking, trying to not look like herself because obviously they knew they could run into media. And he actually chased her into the into the forest, mm. and she hid behind a tree and had to use a mirror to check up, like oh behind God. her to see if he had he was gone. And mm. yeah, and she thought she was gone, so she tried to run in, keep running, and he's like, and then I got the photo of her, that way. Yeah, yeah that's right. Ugh. No, I don't, I don't like that. Yeah, and then uh, so he, that's the thing he, is, he was like the first person to like really figure out where she was and get those like key moments. And uh, this, this next one, this final story that I'm going to talk about is just um, story. Uh, when there started to be a lot of in- rumors about their engagement. Mm-hmm. And um, she was still working at a nursery school, and but no one knew what school, and the media was actually going around to nursery schools looking for her. And That's creepy. Yes. And um, Edwards managed once again to find her, and he actually ended up speaking to her boss, asking if she would come outside to take a photo, and she was just like, okay, I don't want more people to find out that I'm, I'm working at this school. You know, I don't want to put the kids or you know their parents don't want to make anybody mad yeah so she offered to take a photo and she got she left work and she he was like oh can i take photos with the kids and she was like i don't know and she she ended up posing with several kids oh is that the famous photo with the legs yes okay and that's how the leg photo ended up occurring which is um so she was holding these kids and when they first took she's wearing a white skirt and what ends up is she he's uh, edward says the sun came out and it pretty much when she takes the photo you can see her legs outlined and it's yeah, it's quite dramatic. I mean, it yes. looks like it looks like it's somebody wearing a sheer layer. Right. I mean, you don't see anything really like up in this bathing suit area, but yeah. like her legs, you can de- see distinctly. Right, and that was like the photo, and every book I've read about yes. her talks about it, and how it was like the picture, and how all the guys were like hubba hubba, right? And, like you know, but also like oh god, like that. She didn't go out in the skirt because it's like one of those things. You see actresses sometimes on red carpet photos. They'll be wearing like a black dress and then the flash will go off and you can pretty much see through the dress. And so that's that's what this was. Mm -hmm. It's not like she went out wearing. She's not being like a. Somebody who went to the VMAs, probably. (laughs) All my hip hop culture references. But like she's not going to be out there like a, you know, 
a Jenner, you know, wearing something that's completely see-through. She didn't, or she didn't do it on purpose. Like, it just happened that this dress or this skirt was, when it was backlit. in the light, yes. When it was backlit, you could see in the photos. And so it was kind of like, oof. Right. And so, yeah, so that was kind of her first kind of embarrassing moment caught, even though she agreed to pose for this photo and that was kind of her early years especially during her engagement um, to Prince Charles was trying to appease people yeah she thought um, I mean I would be like oh maybe if they just get my photo they'll leave me alone right but as you said before there's just like this appetite that they need more and more and they need to see certain reactions certain things um, just like Kate Middleton used to be followed to work yeah um, Diana was also followed to work before she announced the engagement. Essentially, once she got engaged, she Diana disappeared. She moved. She went to Australia for a time, mm-hmm. I read. Um, and she, yeah. And then she moved into Buckingham Palace. And from there, you don't really see her beyond the engagement interview that she did with Prince Charles, um, which was kind of their first, obviously, planned media. Yes. And, and that wasn't... <laughs> a, I mean, it was successful in the moment, but in retrospect, it... I mean, it was... It's kind of awkward. It's super awkward. Well, you were going to talk about... Yes, so, you know, the the interviewer asks, you know, Prince Charles, like, you know, are you guys in love? Or do you love her? And he's like, whatever love means. Or she says, so you guys are in love with each other? And she goes, of course. And she's, like, snuggling up to him. She looks like she is in love. And I think she was in love. And Mm -hmm. he goes... And he kind of, like, grabs her and kind of pats her arm like you would a... A child, an overly affectionate <laughs> child. I mean, it really, that's kind of what he was treating her like. And then says, yes, whatever Remember being in love means. means. Which, <laughs> and she laughs, but like, and she's like, ah ha ha. Cause that, but like, whoa, what a question. If, yeah, mm-mm. that would be, right. that's a red flag. And it gets brought up kind of in the postmortem of their yes. relationship. Everyone's like, well, yeah. He knew what love was. He was in love with another woman. And yikes. And the funny thing is in the biography that I'm reading right now, the most recent Prince Charles one, she talks about how it also, she thinks, she even, the author, uh, Sally Bettle-Smith, posits that she thinks that even Charles, maybe, like, obviously we can't tell his entire emotions and everything, but that he's so logical and he wanted to be more philosophical about love. And that's why (laughs) he said that. I was like... I'm sorry, you're gonna, like, you knew that this question was going to be asked of you. Yeah. I just feel like that's not an appropriate response, especially if you're trying to really put out that image that you are two people who love each other and are, (laughs) you know, so. (laughs) I mean, yeah, can I quantify, can I define love? Exactly. I mean, it is a hard thing to do and stuff, but... That's not a thing that you, like, if I'm going, if my, if I am saying to my mom, my mom says, I love you, sweetie. I'm going to say, I love you too, whatever love is. Like, I'm not going to do that. She would be like, she'd she'd be like, what the heck? Yes. Jeez, ungrateful (laughs) daughter. Like, you know, that's not, that's not how you react. I mean, and yeah, love is varied. Like, again, romantic love is different from the love you have for your mom or whatever. But like, it's still love. You know what it is. It's how I feel about all dogs everywhere. Right. You know, it's it's like just love them all. Ugh. Yeah. yeah. Oh gosh, but that's awkward. Yeah. So even from the start, Diana did have kind of a rough and weird relationship with the media. Obviously, she needed she and Prince Charles needed to use it to you know announce their engagement. People are excited. 
you know, they're gonna, there's going to be a royal wedding. Uh, but she, yeah, she didn't have those protections, especially pre-engagement that it looks like almost every kind of royal bride, like Kate Middleton, even Meghan Markle and to, to an extent. Right. If, um, you know, things go forward with her and Harry, they just don't get those protections and they have to go continue living their life. And um, Diana obviously was never really trained on how she should deal with this. And so it was just like, okay, sure. I'll take, yeah, I'll t- you can take a photo of me versus right. Kate Middleton, who is very just like when she's getting, when she would be hounded by, you know, the press pack while trying to get to work, she, you know, she just does not engage. She's, she's nice in the sense like she's not going to yell at, she never yelled at anyone or anything. She definitely had like, I rolled her eyes sometimes, but like she didn't answer questions versus Diana, who was very like, you know, I can't really talk about that right now. Um, you know, right. She, I mean, Kate's clearly got the message of don't feed the animals. Right. You know? Yeah. So, you know, then obviously the, their wedding itself was a huge media spectacle. Papers were, you know, publishing every, every day, probably in the (laughs) months leading up to it and broadcast again on TV. It had a huge audience around the world. You know, it was, and they realized, okay, yeah, this story is selling. Um, the royal family, it seems like they understood that that there would be a lot of media frenzy around this wedding. They again didn't seem to think that that media frenzy would continue for whatever reason. And I think it's possible because you know it had been it had been so long since the heir to the an heir to the throne had gotten married, and that was Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. And the press was a very different animal at that time. Um, but even then, I mean, they had a lot of media attention, but they seemed to see that the media died down on them uh, after a while. And so they assumed that the same thing would happen here. Um, so it was quite shocking to them that it didn't. You know, early on in their marriage, the press was trying to get more and more information. Obviously, the public loved Princess Diana. She um, was beautiful. She was kind of a you know, sudden princess who's just this girl who married a handsome prince and got everything every woman is, it's, we're told every woman wants and all this stuff. And so they kind of kept crossing that line. In 1982, um, when Diana was pregnant uh, with Prince William, uh, a paparazzo took a photo of her while she was on vacation. She was wearing a bikini while pregnant. And then they tried to sell that photo around. And the queen lost her mind. Like, she was so mad. Lost her rag, I guess I'll say. Like, she <laughs> she was so upset. And it's she's been quoted as saying, like, it was one of the most intrusive. Like, she just was so upset with it. Because to her, it wasn't only... It was, it, it was taking, you know, what had happened to her sister all those years ago of getting photographed in a bathing suit. But it was... I mean, it was her as a pregnant woman. And also, I mean, there's a little, might have been a little bit of old fashionedness where like you wouldn't like say, saying that somebody was pregnant was considered like embarrassing. Right. Like, you know, like <laughs> cover going, up. going back to Jane Austen, like in Sense and Sensibility, when they're talking about Charlotte is going to be confined soon and they're like, oh, my God, how dare you mention that she's going to have a baby? And it's like, yeah. what what's wrong? Like, come on. You know, it's a it's a thing to talk about. Not if you don't want to, but like. You shouldn't yell at somebody. <laughs> you shouldn't yell at somebody to like do that. And yeah. so the fact that she was photographed, I mean, with her pregnant stomach exposed, like just the queen was up in arms about it. And so again, they kind of thought maybe this is press frenzy surrounding the fact that, you know, she's pregnant with 
you know, her the first right. grandchild, the heir, the heir. I mean, if it's a boy, yeah, you know, it's going to be the heir. And so, um, and when William was born, and uh, well, he was born in well, June. June, yeah. So he then, uh, I'm going to talk about focus on their first uh, tour, big tour. I talked about their tour to the United States, their brief one, um, and that was you know interesting. Wait, that might have been later. Hmm, never mind. Well, right now I'm talking about their tour to Australia and New Zealand that took place in March and April of 1983. And on this tour, um, obviously Prince William was already born. He was nine months old at the time and he accompanied his parents on this tour, which was kind of another first. Um, when the Queen and Prince Philip traveled on these long journeys, they did not take their small children with them. Um, they were separated from them at long stretches. And I think both Prince Charles and Diana did not want that to happen with their kids. I mean, so when possible, they wanted to travel with him. And especially here, because this was a six-week tour, and so that's quite a long time to be away. And really, they, they say that the reaction to them arriving, and specifically to Diana arriving in Australia, it was a bit like Beatlemania. Um, they traveled with a huge contingent of British press, and when since William was too small to travel everywhere with them and they were doing a lot of engagements, he was staying at this farm um, called Woomergana. Or no, wait, Woomargama. Woomergama. I don't know. <laughs> but he, which was a privately uh, owned farm and like, but like a, obviously probably beautiful and luxurious and all of that. And the British press really staked that place out because then the thirst was also for news of what was going on in his life. Mm -hmm. We do know that that's where Prince William took his first steps at that farm, you know, and it was, uh, it was, you know, an important milestone. But again, like imagine like you're on vacation, you bring your baby, you're, you're going to on a work trip. Okay. And you bring your baby and your baby, you've got like, you know, your good friend or your nanny or your child, your mother, your sister, your father, your uncle, whoever, your caretaker for your child who's going to watch your kid while you are off doing your work on your work trip. And then there's just like hordes of press, like staking out the fence. Like that's just creepy no matter who you are. And I mean, I know like they're public figures, but like, it's still weird. But there's, there are public figures at certain times. Right, exactly. And, well, that's what I mean. Like, yeah. it's, yeah, it's just But such not a, to, but everyone still wants to know what they're doing when they're not, you know, in public. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, Diana really describes this, uh, this first week of the tour as the week where she learned how to be a royal. Because that was when she, again, she hadn't received, according to her, she hadn't received any further training on how mm -hmm. to deal with the press. It seems like the palace just thought it was all going to die down. And she, uh, so she was there and having to deal with people yelling things at her, trying to get pictures of her. Um, the other thing she was dealing with was the fact that the press seemed to be more interested in getting photos of her rather than of Prince Charles or of the two of them together. And also the people she was there visiting on public engagements seemed to be more interested in meeting her. And so she talks about this a lot in later um, press interviews, including the one I'll talk about in a bit, where she talks about kind of the jealousy being one of the causes of the problems in their marriage, which was that Prince Charles had always been it. He'd always been the main event. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden he had to compete 
or and, and was losing to, according to her narrative, her compete with her in this bid for attention. Not that they even wanted the attention, but still it's like, oh, well, okay, I guess I'm just here with my wife, you know, and he wasn't expecting that and she wasn't expecting it. And so they had no real strategy for how to deal with it. Um, and he wasn't necessarily able to be supportive because I think he was a little bit taken aback by it all. Um, you see a lot of, you know, their relationship with each other through the photos from this press tour. Uh, one of them is the uh, photo in front of Uluru, which is the big rock formation in the outback. And it's a beautiful photo. And most people have seen it because when Will and Kate went down to Australia and New Zealand, they also took a photo in front of that. And it was yet another photo op where they were mimicking something that Charles and Diana had done, similar to when they went to Southeast Asia and they went to the Taj Mahal. Yes. Where now that, that bench is called the Diana seat because she sat on it, which like the Taj Mahal was built for this woman. Like it's, it's like, like her a symbol being, of love, a symbol of love. Like it's, it's a, the largest shrine to a woman, but Di princess Diana is a different woman who has like a part of it carved out for herself because everyone was so obsessed with her. But you know, this, um, the photos there are interesting. And that was also where they did a photo call with, uh, Prince William. And you might have seen these. They're on a blanket. They're at. This is when they were in New Zealand. They're on a blanket in on the lawn of a like government building that's pretty. And Diana's wearing a green dress that's got white polka dots, and she's got like this big frilly collar. Yes. Which I can only just. My first thought is always like that looks like something a clown wears, which is bad. <laughs> but like the eighties, man. But yeah, that was the style. It was, know? and like, like Prince Prince Charles is wearing like. Thurston Howell the third like double-breasted suit like looks like he's buttoned up as yeah. much as you can be and um, You know they're walking him and it was funny because one of the photos is apparently Prince William started crawling towards the photographers like off the blanket and Diana's like being like nope, nope. Like, no no nope, no nope. come, come back get over here um, today Yeah, so but again, so they're they're opening up their Themselves they're trying to say like here. Let's just have our we'll just sit here and we'll take pictures and you can see how cute our boy is. Cause mm -hmm. he is. Yeah. And he can like crawl around and look, he's standing on his own. Like he'll lean on Prince Charles's knee and, and stand up on his own. Like, isn't this great? But, um, you know, the press thinking that you're going to appease it. It's, it's not exactly what happened. Mm. So leading more into her as a mother yes. dealing with the press. Yeah, so as as a mother, essentially, you know, like, we talk about how she, um, especially even in the Diana, um, Our Mother, Her Legacy, was that what it's yeah. called? Yeah. Um, documentary that aired um, a couple weeks ago. Uh, it was all about trying to, it was once again about trying to kind of appease the media and give them enough about her children's life, about William and Harry's lives, um, whether or not it was of picture you know on their first day of school or something like that and in, in hopes that that would you know get them to back off and not allow William and Harry to have kind of that normal childhood that she really wanted them to have and um, knew that you know Prince Charles never really had and because his mother was you know obviously a very busy woman and obviously British um, children especially you know upper class 
children didn't really get that experience. They had nannies, you know, you saw your parents for a couple hours a day. Like at 30 minutes, like, and right. you were formally dressed and brushed and like bathed and it was right. like you were going to pay a call on somebody. You would do yeah. like, and you know, the famous photo of Prince Charles shaking his mother's hand at the airport. <laughs> I mean, like, like, you know, woof. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so part of that was, you know, and one of the first, um, and they show a video that I did watch. It's of, um, Charles, Diana and, um, William and William's probably no more than like a year, maybe eight months old. And, um, the, he's actually playing with the photographers and stuff and he's looking at their cameras and they're really trying to get him comfortable because they just know that this is going to be his yeah. life and uh, Diana's asking him to like, you know, like show him your wave and that stuff. Oh, yeah. Like when George salutes. Right. Exactly. Okay, and so I, so a lot of it was just trying to get them to be comfortable because she knew that that was going to be their life and, um, for them and that people are interested in knowing about them, but that if they don't give them at least something, they're going to be more invasive. And it didn't, it, and you can see that, for example, in the Diana documentary when they show um, William and Harry are skiing with her mother, with their mother in Austria, and they do a, a photo call. And even after that, they're still trying to follow them down the slopes to candy stores, to that stuff. Like it's just, and, and right. by that time she's gotten, she's a lot thicker skin and she's willing to yell at them and tell them, you know, like, I already did photos with you. I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah. Like, will you leave, will you respect my children's privacy? Yes. And he's like, yeah, if you give me this one photo and I will, if I were her, I'd be like, why should I believe you? You, right. you idiot. Like you, I, I gave you this one, like, you know, but if you give a mouse a cookie, like, come on, right. what are you doing? Like, no, why do I believe you? You're right. clearly have no sense of like personal boundaries so why are you going to respect this like yeah there are some yeah. people who will do that but ugh. yeah exactly so i mean as far as that kind of experience is she did really try for a long time to appease them and just give them those those photo calls that used to be enough for any royal right but it was well, never enough because she was just that engaging and interesting and right, the world had evolved and was like, well, no, we want to know everything. And right, we're moving towards the twenty-four hour news cycle here. Yes. Like the tabloids are becoming bigger and bigger. There are more and more of them out there, and so to get to be able to compete with them, with each other, right. they want the scoop. They want the photo, and photos are going to you know you want something splashy you can put on your cover, and you know something that is you know, a picture of Princess Diana is going to sell a ton because people are interested in her. Right. And uh, Diana, obviously, she didn't get that quite that training that she should have received. And, and maybe no one in the royal family had that training because, I mean, they never really had to deal with it because they weren't that new, fresh face for the monarchy. So I think she really tried to give at least William and Harry at least some sense of maybe you can be more comfortable with them if you have to grow up living this way. Um, obviously even looking at them now that, and the circumstances around their mother's death, that just never, it didn't pan out that way, which is fine because ultimately if you look at William's life, he has been very protective of Kate and his children and with good reason. Right. Yeah. Cause there's people hiding in the back seats of their trunks trying to get photos of and Prince like, George. Yeah. And like yeah. bringing toddlers out to like lure, lure him them. to come play, which like, that's Ugh. the thing that like, that's what that's, psychos do. Yeah. That's like. Like, sex offenders. Yeah. Like, no, mm -mm, mm -hmm. I don't like it. And it's yeah. like, 
yeah, it's just, it's just, yeah. Gross. Uh, and then, I mean, well, I think you'll get a little bit more into this in the next part, but talking about, especially when, you know, there was rumors of their separation and um, Diana and Charles were kind of doing things very separately. You definitely always saw, there was very public displays of affection. Diana was always very affectionate when she saw the kids. They were obviously excited to see her since they didn't see her all the time. Right. Um, but definitely that image was perpetuated in the media because it was always like an excitement and so happy to see her and all that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, moving towards that end of the marriage. So in 1992 was when the formal separation was announced. Things had obviously been quite tumultuous, uh, for a while before that, um, and I'll get into an anecdote a little bit uh, about just in a minute here. But really, in 1992, Diana starts realizing that she can use this media, like this media monster she's been fighting, she can try to use it for her own benefit. So obviously there's a huge market out there for stories about her and about her relationship with Charles, and she realizes well she can get she should get out ahead of the story and get her side of things out there before anyone has a chance to throw her under the bus kind of because she knows that they're heading for a formal separation at this point or she knows they're heading for something um that's the relationship as it existed is untenable and so she knows that because what i mean if if they get a divorce at this point in her mind it's it's actually pretty smart. I mean, she's the one who's not going to be a royal anymore, or she's the one who's going to have more to lose. Prince Charles will still be Prince Charles, assumedly, to her. And so she's the one who's going to have to be out there. And so the best weapon she can have is public opinion on her side. So we talked about this book a little bit last week in our recommendation of biographies. And this in 1992, there was a book published by Andrew Morton, and it was a biography that uh, talked a lot about the problems Princess Diana had and the problems with their marriage, her background, and it was really juicy. It was so juicy that people recognized nuggets of truth in it and were quite alarmed with the level of detail it went into, and they were concerned about who the source for the book was. Um, and at that time, Andrew Morton and Princess Diana were both vehement about the fact that she had no role in helping him with this book. He just claimed he had other sources. Uh, he didn't really talk about who the sources were at this point, at the very early point. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but it, it really went out there. It, it told stories about how, you know, Prince Charles was always having an affair from the jump. It really framed her as the victim in this, but also it painted her as somebody who was, who triumphed in spite of being downtrodden and it was really you know engaging book and a lot of people bought it and read it or if they didn't buy it and read it they heard about it from their co-worker yes. over an <laughs> afternoon cup of tea or at the water cooler or wherever i mean it was something that people talked about the royal family was not happy with this book um it's seen as i mean so this was published you know in the same year soon after the fire at Windsor Castle. And so this is yeah. whole, the whole, um, uh, what is it? Annus Horribilis. Yeah. yeah. It's, 
the queen is just, she's just up again. She's just like, what is happening to my world? Like it's literally on fire and it's figuratively on right. fire. Cause also her son, Prince Andrew. And oh, yeah. his separation from his wife. And, yeah, and <laughs> Anne was getting re- divorced and remarried. I mean, yes. it was, the whole family was, you know, freaking out. And I think, you know, in part, a lot of the finger pointing could be done towards the media. Now, okay, we were kind of talking about this before we started recording. You know, things can have, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but things can have more than one cause. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there, it's not necessarily like just because the media caused strain in all of these relationships, which it undoubtedly did. It's not the media's fault that, you know, Diana and Charles got divorced. It's, you know, not necessarily the media's fault that anything happened particularly. I mean, except for they took pictures and the pictures got published. That's the media's fault. But, but like of these larger arcs, but at the same time, they certainly had an impact. We just can't really tell. It's hard to tell how big of an impact. And, um, so, you know, in 1992, that's when they, they announced their formal separation in December of that year. Um, and the divorce doesn't actually happen until 1996. So, Diana at this point realizes, okay, there's, there's this announcement out there. We're formally separated. People know uh, that we're apart. Charles gave an interview on TV where he admitted that he had been having an affair. And Diana, I don't know, I mean, again, I don't know what exactly caused this, but in 1995, Diana sat down for a, and gave an interview for the BBC, and they had a program called Panorama. And this was, it ended up being an hour-long interview with um, that was broadcast on TV, uh, the, she was interviewed by Martin Bashir. We talked about him a little bit in an earlier yes. episode. And again, he was uh, he was kind of a newer face on the scene at this point. He was a British journalist, but he hadn't done anything huge yet. This was his first big, big story. He later, I think, cancels out any goodwill he had by doing <laughs> that awful, like, documentary, fake documentary of Michael Jackson where he, like, claimed he had all these things. But really, he just, it's not, I, I don't think it's quite ethical Ooh. what he did. Uh, with journalistic ethics, I I don't know. Again, I don't know what journalistic ethics are. I just know I think it's skeevy. And yeah. I don't like it. Lies in general. Yeah. You know, well, it's just unreliable implication. Sources. Yeah, yeah. It just seems to be. Again, it's not like in a book where you, or it's not like in a in a journalism in an article where you like have you're going to follow the facts where they go. You're going to have this story and you're going to kind of t- frame the story around. You're going to make it look like a certain thing because that would be more sensational. But anyway, so she has this interview and 22.8 million people watched this interview. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> um, this is before DVRs. Yeah. I even this, remember my parents. Yeah. And like I was very young and I remember my parents were like talking about it. Yeah. So it was on the BBC and then I think it was rebroadcast on ABC in America or one of the networks. And so it was the thing that people were going to watch. Um, It was the setting of it was uh, just two armchairs. She was wearing like kind of a more conservative black suit. I mean, it was still really stylish. She looked great. Um, Black hose, um, really simple makeup but quite thick eyeliner. Um, and then, you know, just trying to look as 
she almost looked funereal. Like, she almost looked like she was in mourning. And I mm -hmm. think it was a very deliberate choice for her. Yes. There's also supposedly some, like, I've heard, like, Prince Charles didn't think that she should ever wear black except for at, like, funerals. Well, and yeah, so there's the black dress. So I think it's also, like, a, I'm going to wear black on national television. Yeah, she wore to, like, their first, like, public engagement black. And yep. apparently it's just yeah, and then color for yeah for that or something. Right. Well, that's it's probably like oh, it's it's slutty to wear black. Right. And it's like no, it's not. Come on. Right. It's a little black dress. Everyone has it. Um, and so she really got to say her piece here. She talked a lot about actually the media's role in this interview. So this mm -hmm. is quite meta. She talked about the whole the most daunting aspect of her relationship was the media attention. She talked about what an isolating experience it was and really how she was a good product that for for the tabloids and for the papers. Mm -hmm. um, she also talked about, like I was talking about, the jealousy that came with the press attention. She was also able to talk about some of the more controversial topics that I can't imagine the royal family would was thrilled she, she talked about. Some of those I, I think were really important and really I was... I didn't know she, for example, talked about postpartum depression, or she called it antenatal depression, because Brits have to have <laughs> different terms from us. But, I mean, that was, she put a name on something that a lot of people, you know, I'm assuming at the time didn't know a lot about. There's still a whole lot of education happening on that topic, and, you know, it's something that affects a lot of women, you know, who are going, well, once they're through their pregnancy. And it's something that, like, it's such it's one of those things that it's really good to talk about it and talk about how anyone can experience it because it a lot of times you know you're not necessarily being you know there's the term like gaslighting you're not necessarily no one's gaslighting you but you are gaslighting yourself you're thinking oh i'm just it's just me going through this oh I, you know oh i'm the one i'm the failure i can't come through with this but like if princess diana if a princess talks about how she had depression right. after she had her first son when, you know, assumably everyone thinks like, oh, everyone will just be so happy and overjoyed and stuff. She's talking about like, no, this is a thing. And I didn't get help, you know, but saying it out loud, I think, you know, made it, made at least put the idea or put the, that people knew more about what it was right. because she was talking about it. She also talked about um, self-harm and bulimia. Again, those are um, important topics that don't get talked a lot of, about and I think you know bringing attention to mental health is something that obviously William and Harry have carried on through their charity in a little bit of a different way but um, also it was a good way to and again I don't know her motives behind anything but it was quite effective in garnering sympathy for her oh absolutely um, if you're talking about, you know, she kind of explained like, oh, I had these issues because nobody was listening to me. It was a cry for help. I, you know, bulimia was my way to cope with the pressure. Um, Self-harm was because I felt bad on the inside and I wanted to feel bad. I wanted to show people that I felt bad. So I caused myself harm. I mean, she talks a lot about this stuff. She also talks about Camilla and the affair. This is where the famous quote, there were three of us in the marriage came from. Um, so so she says there were three of us in this marriage so it was a bit crowded which dang that's a sound bite if i yes. ever heard one um she admits at this point that she so had a hand in the andrew morton book from 1992 mm -hmm. um and she also talks about uh squidgy gate a bit yes. and she kind of it seems to imply that it was 
published out there. And Squidgy Gate, by the way, is so some of her personal phone calls were uh, with uh, James Gilby, who was her friend. Uh, her friend. Yes. I don't know exactly what were recorded, and then they were public. They were sent anonymously to a newspaper. Okay, so we don't know who sent them. Some people say, "Oh, it's got to be someone in the palace." Right. Other people say, "She sent them." She right. sent them, and to it was to do this. There was there was a thing where there was another man who it had been reported that she called this other man obsessively like 300 times in like two hours and the press ran with it. And then it, she's like, no, I mean, he was my friend, but I never did that. And it turns out it was a teenager, like who just was prank calling this person constantly. Oh my gosh, that's creepy. But like, why was the, I mean, besides just being a teenager thinking prank phone calls are funny, like, you know, this is where the conspiracy and the like, what is this just a coincidence? What's happening? And she talks about how, she won't, she, she says, she's, uh, they're trying to make her uh, go away, but she won't go quietly. She's kind of framing it as like, a, this is a battle now. She describes the enemy as, she says something about like, it's the enemy doesn't expect it. And Martin Bashir says, well, who's the enemy? And she says, that's Charles's department. I mean, she talks about, she straight up alleges that they're trying to make her seem unsympathetic mm -hmm. in the media's eyes. She talks about Prince William's reaction to the breakdown of the marriage, which, again, I feel like the Queen was probably not very happy with her dragging her son's name into it. She talks about the prospect of divorce. She pretty much says that she is she's not going to be the one to ask for a divorce. Charles is going to have to do it. Um, she also says she doesn't think a divorce is going to happen. Well, spoiler alert, it does. So, it, isn't it after this interview, this is kind of the tipping point? It is. Okay. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, again, one of the shortly. tipping points. It's, it's, this was, this was, um, you know, you can light the fuse to a bomb, or you can just throw a grenade at a bomb, yeah. and the bomb will explode. <laughs> like, this was throwing a grenade at a bomb. I mean, like, the fuse was lit, and it was, it was going slowly. It was going to explode. This just sped everything up. Mm -hmm. It was, it was really a lot. This is also where she said, um, she wanted to be the queen of people's hearts. She was, she didn't expect she would ever be queen and all of that. So, um, there were kind of two reactions to this in the media and amongst the public. One was seeing her that they people who were praising her for this interview they talked about how she did great she was articulate i mean one of the things that she she talked about um in elsewhere was one time she described herself as being thick as a plank and she said she did it to reassure a kid at a hospital who seemed nervous to her and she said oh don't don't worry about being nervous around me you know i'm i'm no one smart you know you can talk to me which, you know, we all do that in stuff. But she then later was haunted by that description of herself. And she wanted to prove that she wasn't stupid. And, you know, there's street smarts and there's book smarts. And you can argue about which one's more important. And I think it depends on your job, <laughs> for one thing. <laughs> um, it's good to have some of both. But, you know, those there are a lot of people who said, like, no one can call her thick, thick as a plank anymore. She did come across you know, really self-possessed and really mm -hmm. articulate and everything. There were people who saw the same interview and said, oh my gosh, this, this, she's so paranoid. Like she just seemed fidgety. She seemed really like, you know, she was coming up with these claims. Like people are coming after her. Who's coming after her? Like, why would they do that? And all of these things. And a lot of somebody who, you know, 
turns out was a friend of a friend of Diana, like what a, the ex-husband of one of Diana's friends or something said like, oh, it was watching somebody was like watch, interview, watching somebody like a, in a mental hospital try to explain their grandiose ideas. I mean, it was like the other side, you know, there were some people who were like, mm, some of her claims seem fishy. Mm -hmm. And then there were people who were like, no, she's paranoid. This is creepy how paranoid she is. So again, there was the two sides of this. So she wanted the first reaction. She wanted people to see her speaking well and getting her story out there and sympathizing with her. But then it also backfired quite a bit because she was coming out guns blazing against this institution and she came across as being really, you know, fidgety and concerned and stuff. Um, and, you know, in now looking at some of the things that she claimed in her various books and in these interviews, it's, it's not necessarily like that she was lying, but it's, it's just kind of clear that she may have been exaggerating things or may not have, she may have been kind of paranoid about him. Like there's one thing she talked about, which is that to kind of paint Charles as this guy who was never committed to their marriage. She mm -hmm. talks about how he wore a pair of cufflinks that Camilla gave him while they were on their honeymoon. And so she talks about how, you know, Oh, of course he wasn't. He told me initially that Camilla, he and Camilla were over, but how can you be? He's wearing her cufflinks. Like what's happening? Mm -hmm. Well, the book that I read, um, I can't remember, Tina Brown's book. Oh, the Diana Chronicles? The Diana Chronicles. She talks, she's like, I'm going to look at this incident. Well, she said, I'm skeptical that one, this, like, if this happened, it wasn't Charles that did it. Because if you think about it, Charles never dressed himself. He never picked out his own clothes. His valet did, or valet, yeah. yes. did it for him. And what we do know is that Diana and the valet hated each other. Yeah. Just absolutely hated each other. She saw him as being way too involved in Charles's life, and he saw her as encroaching on her, his territory because she was buying him pastel sweaters. So, <sighs> so I mean, if Charles was wearing these cufflinks, I mean, still, Charles, look at your cufflinks. If they're from your ex, like, please don't wear them on your honeymoon. Right. Not getting you off the hook. But, but sometimes guys are also kind of dumb. <laughs> And you like, said it and I didn't. Like, yeah. Yeah. Or they're, like, like, they're not detail-oriented. Right. He or just, they wouldn't think that would upset you. But yes, regardless, he was most likely still having an affair, at least an emotional affair with Camilla yeah, at that time. Yeah, he was probably still in love with her. Yeah. But, like, the thing is, I don't think he purposely went into his jewelry box, and Tina Brown says, like, I don't think he went into his closet and said, ah, the, the Camilla cufflinks. <laughs> yes, I will have these now. I think he probably, you know, was like, looked at his shirt as an overall, like, or his outfit as an overall scheme, said, yeah, that'll do, and then took, picked up the cufflinks and threw them on and dashed off to dinner or wherever. You know, so, again, it could either have just been an accident on everyone's part, it, or it could have been the valet messing with her deliberately because he knew she was insecure about this and he didn't like her, or, you know, Charles picked it out. I mean, there's many possibilities. I can see, like... So, like, Diana's claim that he, like, did this on purpose, it's possible. You know, there are uh, there are more likely explanations for it, though, right. I think. Again, it's not letting, I'm not letting Charles off the hook for wearing his ex's jewelry. I Like, of the firm belief that you should get rid of everything that an ex gave you, or just put it in a box on the high shelf of your closet. Yeah. Don't, don't bring it into your regular wardrobe rotation. Like, you have plenty of cufflinks, Charles. There's other options. Right. 
you know? Maybe just say, you know what would be great? Like, let's box this up and tell Diana and Camilla are better friends, and then we can all laugh about it. Right, or you know? I'll just go buy some new ones because I'm, like, a millionaire. Right, or I'll get C and D intertwined instead of, instead of two C's. Yeah. Again, like, <laughs> there are so many things he could have done, but... Yeah, so, so this paranoia that people alleged, again, it was... It wasn't... There, I don't think she was, like, hearing voice. I don't think it was, like, really straight up. But I do think she was, you know, grabbing on to fragments and old resentments and, you know, saying them how she perceived it or how she felt about it. Because that was a big betrayal to her. Mm-hmm. Because even if he didn't intentionally do it, it still hurt her a lot. And he probably never apologized right. for it. <laughs> you know? But, yeah, there's that. And apparently, so, um, just talking about this, one last thing on this, is um, there is a recent um, article in the Telegraph where Patrick Jeffson, her uh, former private secretary, talks about how she kind of almost immediately regretted doing this interview because she did recognize that it was going to be the grenade tossed on that already ticking time bomb. (laughs) It was going to make everyone really mad and... She was smart enough to realize, you know, but it's one of those things where, like, you, you're like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go scorched earth. And then yeah. later you're like, no, I should. Oh, I was. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh. I just find it. I think it's really interesting because I felt like obviously she didn't take credit for the Andrew Morton book right away. Yeah. But like that itself was just like they would have known her, especially the royal family, that she definitely was involved in that. Egg. Yeah. That would have. I felt like that would have been so much like the the catalyst right away but i think they hoped that maybe like it would go away or something yeah well she denied it quite yeah she was really she said it was eventually they said it was like her close friend or like her second cousin or something like that that was the sources and so that and that was kind of an explanation like those people would be close enough to know and the palace didn't have nda disclosure or (laughs) non-disclosure agreements with those people so you know i think they were also thinking she really wanted to stay a princess, and I think they kind of were like, "No, listen, you can't do this again. One more strike, and you're you're gone." Mm-hmm. And then this televised interview, which she right. saw as you know, probably saw as retaliating for Charles's admission that he had been conducting a long time affair. You know, then they're like, "No, we can't do this anymore." Right. It's not good for anybody. So yeah. So what ultimately? kind of our last segment is just her death Mm -hmm. and um we're not going to do a play-by-play of what happened that night in paris no it's it's sad enough and if you don't know the full story or the at least the general details the internet exists and yes um certainly look that up and and we understand that there's many theories about what happened that evening and who's to blame and um especially uh Princess Diana's companion at that time, uh, Dodie Al-Fayed's um, family has been very vocal about the British royal family's involvement in her in their death and believe that um, Prince Philip, you know, had, like, MI6, like, involved and hurt their death and, you know, all that. and Or it was just the paparazzi chasing them or whatnot. Anyways, yeah, and scooters. There's, and- right. There's lots of theories, and we're not going to go into those because... Um, we're not really here to place blame on anyone, just to kind of explain. Those. Yeah, I mean, like we were saying, you know, two things can be true. I yes. mean, two things can cause something, and so you know, her death isn't necessarily like the media. We're not, 
we're not going to go into the conspiracy theories. Yeah. But, like, you know, there were paparazzi on motor scooters going after the car yes. that she was in when it crashed. And so, you know, again, the media, you can decide what percentage of the blame to allocate to them. I don't think it's 100%. I, I have my own, you know, thoughts on it, which you'll, I think you yeah. probably agree with. Mm -hmm. But it was certainly there and right. an aspect of it right and because of that complexity um in the uk if there is some sort of sudden violent or unnatural death there is usually there is some, it's called a, an inquest is put in yes um, which is essentially usually it's just a coroner goes right. through everything and reports back what they believe is the cause of death and all of that but because we're you gonna say something well i was okay. gonna say like if you think of um but it's also, you know, you might recognize it from, like, literature, like Sherlock yeah. Holmes, there would be inquests, yes. where it was pretty much, like, it was kind of like a trial before a trial. Yes. It was like you would get a few, like, dudes off the street <laughs> and be like, we found this guy stabbed in the heart. How do you think he got stabbed in the heart? And the barman would be like, well, he he called this other guy, like, a son of a bitch. And yeah. it's like, and so then he stabbed him. And then they're like, yeah, that sounds believable. Yeah, he got stabbed. He died. That guy right. did. You know, it was like murder. So then yes. you could bring, it was the first step. Right. But yeah, then once it modernized a bit, it stopped being guys on the street. It started being, like, a scientist and a public official doing, right. doing it. Um, but because this is such a, was so high profile and there was just a lot of emotion, on both sides from the royal family and the Elphiads, um, they decided to bring in a jury mm -hmm. to review the facts about what happened that night in Paris. And um, the jury, and so I'm, I think based for, for this, um, you know, review of the media, this is kind of what I'm going to base what I'm about to tell you about off of is their findings. Um, not only because they heard from 278 witnesses. Oh my God. Um, and it took over 90 days to complete, and taxpayers paid more than 6.5 million pounds to conduct all of this. Um, and the jury deliberated for more than 22 hours. Oh, that's uh, actually over quite, four days. That's quite short, though. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, for a 90-day thing, right? Yeah, but um, well, but still, okay, a I'll, lot of time to it's listen it's, to. Oh God, people. it's all yeah. yeah. Um, this was their findings and it, right. Like what we talked about, there's no, there's, there's certainly more than one cause. Yes. Um, it wasn't just that they were being chased by the paparazzi who had followed them from the hotel. Um, it was the driver on Paul had been drinking and was well over the limit. Yeah. He, he was, he was intoxicated. Um, the people in the car were not wearing seatbelts. Right. All of that stuff. Um, and they so they said that they definitely had a part. They said that they were un, that they were unlawfully killed by a combination of those two things, the um, yes, the a drunk driver and you know just kind of that fear and pursuit. Yeah, the um, fact that the fact that they it wasn't like um, you know he the driver had all the time in the world and was in a wide open road, you know like in the mm -hmm. flat. You know, big flat yeah. expanse where, you know, again, do not drive drunk. I mm -hmm. feel like I don't have to say that. But, yes. you know, if you drive off, like, you may go into a ditch, but, or like where you can, you know, where he would be driving at like 30 miles an hour or whatever. Mm -hmm. This was a high speed, high pressure thing where yes. he was trying to escape. Yes. Which, obviously, do you know, work. that's hard to do when you're not impaired. Mm -hmm. And it would be almost impossible to do when you are impaired. Exactly if not impossible. Yeah. And so once, and the only other part that the, the, the um, inquest 
discussed was that the paparazzi, they did arrive at the crash and a few of them did try to help, but most of them were taking pictures. Yeah. They didn't deviate from that job, even though someone definitely needed help, um, which is something that Prince Harry does bring up in his Diana Seven Days. Um, the documentary is that they certainly didn't interfere with medical attention, but they certainly didn't. There's more that they could have done as just, you know, being a decent person and yeah. knowing that there was obviously a car crash where people, there were already dead people um, at that time. Yeah. And so that's kind of. Well, it's the, like, it's the same thing that like, I mean, I don't know. You don't necessarily like if you get, you know, that's the reason why like a hit and run is a bad crime. Mm-hmm. Like you can't flee. You do like if you get in a car accident, even if you're not at fault, like you can't just drive away, speed away. Like if you get in a car accident with somebody, you know, states are different, but mm-hmm. like they have laws that say like you can't leave the scene of an accident you know, especially with somebody who's injured it, without calling for help, you know, if, if possible at all. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like, you know, I don't know that, I don't know what I would be able to do. I know I, it's not like they were frozen in shock or anything no. either. It's like, you know, there's something that's like, oh, I don't want to interfere. Like what if there's like a spinal injury? Like I don't right. want to move somebody and like be the reason that they end up paralyzed or, or whatever, but like right. to take pictures, no, you don't have to take pictures. No. But, ugh. Yeah. Yeah. There's a difference between just being, yeah, shocked. Yes. And not knowing what to do. Not knowing what to do and then doing that. But unfortunately, they knew what to do because that's their job and that's the, the, the dark reality about the royals is that it's a give and take relationship and mostly it's a take relationship and that was ultimately the end for... Princess Diana when it came to her relationship with the media as far as living. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So, yeah. Oof. Very sad. And uh, um, several of, seven of the photographers were ultimately detained um, and they were charged with manslaughter, but the charges were later dropped. Yeah. Uh, once they were like, there's just so many moving pieces and we don't really know what happened. And Right. Well, yeah. Because, I mean, you would have to prove that I guess you could try to say that, like, as a group, they caused it. Like, there's some... This is just me going into my tort law. Like, there's this one <laughs> famous case where these um, three guys are out hunting together. And one guy is walking, like, and he's doing everything right. And the other two men, like, sh- there's, a there's like, a, a bird goes up. And they turn to shoot, and they don't... They're not walking properly. And they end up... And the guy who's doing everything right gets shot. But you don't know which other guy shot him. You don't know who mm-hmm. shot the gun. But, like, the law found... This is back in the way long ago. Mm-hmm. The law found that they were both being reckless. And together, they caused this shot. We don't know which one of them actually pulled the trigger or, like, the bullet from their gun. Right. You know, or the bird shot or whatever injured this other guy. But, like, they clearly were both wrong. And this guy got injured. And so we can't let them get off. Now, this is for... M- money and not like criminal charges yes. and so they had to pay this guy's hospital bills or whatever i don't think he died but mm-hmm. i mean it's a famous thing and so they might have been going for that but i don't think you i don't know that you can do that with criminal law so all the other paparazzi had to do was say like no he did it it wasn't yeah. me i was being fine and since there was no video or no real proof of what it exactly happened at that moment right yeah it was 
it would be really hard to prove that case against them. Mm -hmm. Even if they all were being contributing to it, you know, together, you can't necessarily, you definitely probably can't do a man, get something as much as manslaughter without more proof. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, um, Princess Diana's brother, Charles Spencer, he, essentially, he summed it up. She was the most hunted person of the modern age. Yeah, which is ironic, because her name's Diana. Right. Yeah. And she's supposed to be the huntress. Right. And as you la- you said last week, she's been on People magazine the yeah. most of any person. She's the She sells. She sells. She still sells. I was at Target the other day, and there was, you know, two magazine covers, I think, with her on it. And I mean, I Mm -hmm. guess, again, it's the anniversary of her death. And so, you know, and it's a slow news week, probably, Mm -hmm. and everyone's got a good, fresh angle on things. And Mm -hmm. again, people are going to buy it just because she's on it. And so... I don't know when. I don't know if it's going to slow down. Like, wasn't there that creepy one where they um, aged her? Yes, that was uh, Tina Brown, actually. Oh, did she do when that? She was at the head of um, Helm of Newsweek. Okay, she was the, responsible for that image. Okay, of her yeah, an aged image of Diana's walking with Kate. Yeah, and it was creepy. Again, yes. Uncanny Valley. Stop, and stop it, speculating what Royals right. are going to look like. It's going to turn out to be like a demon to, baby. Right. It was supposed to be an, um, it was a feature on whether, on Diana, Diana at 50 and what yes. type of woman she would have been and what type of mother-in-law she would have been to Kate and all yeah. of that. And it was very creepy because Diana definitely would have never looked that way because she would have gotten Botox. Yeah. <laughs> God. Are you like, kidding? Like she looked like a zombie, honestly. And it, that's why it was at, just so creepy. 50, like she right. also is, I mean, leaving Botox out of it. Yeah. She also can afford all the best skin creams oh, right. out there. I mean, like she would afford JLo, whoever does JLo's skin, yes. she would be working with that person. Oh, that. And JLo, I mean, is aging in reverse and it's, terrifying and oh, she's totally so, she's so freaking gorgeous yeah like don't know what's going on there but whatever JLo's doing princess die would have had access to that exact same thing absolutely yeah so mm-hmm. i don't know yeah it's weird i mean it's just i mean did, did you have no my last thing was just about i how i personally feel about the media in general but yeah well just moving this a little bit about like what happened afterwards yeah. and we've talked about how you know People are still being really creepy with Prince George. Mm -hmm. And I know there's this huge debate out there about this whole public figure versus right to privacy. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's an important debate. I mean, we're in the time when, you know, a creepy wrestler funded by a shadow billionaire can shut down a, a website because they published something that was, you know, about a public figure that a jury thinks is worth 218 million dollars mm-hmm. for your private life i mean there's there's all this stuff it, it's like that kind of censorship and that kind of like use of the court system to suppress like the freedom of press right. and things like that this little it's it's such a hard balance and i think that's the problem really is because like that obviously is not something we want where people can shut down the free press just by saying like oh my right to privacy is being threatened because these people are newsworthy, and we do want to know what's happening with them. Right. I mean, our podcast in general would not exist without some of it. Exactly. Well, it would just be me. It would just be us writing fan fiction. Right. <laughs> it would be like much creepier and right. more obsessive than it is. But there's also the thing of like you know, where you just kind of feel like 
oh god there's a person who is like getting toddlers to play in a park in hopes right. of luring a two-year-old prince george to come join in right. so they can get pictures like there's just the things that make you kind of feel queasy and mm-hmm. i you know it's like it it's really hard to define that yeah. it's like you know the famous like you know, I can't define pornography. I know it when I see it right. thing. It's kind of like, it's one of those things. It's really hard to articulate. Well, it's, it's like, it's kind of, it, I like to think about it like when I'm trying to figure out like if I should buy a t-shirt or not. And I'm not very good at this still. <laughs> like, I still want my $5 t-shirt even though I know it's been made by someone who's probably not making a living wage. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And that's where I struggle is I'm like, well, I don't want to spend $45 on a t-shirt which still but, might be made by somebody who's not making a living exactly, wage. Exactly. And I think, and that's where I struggle. I'm like, well, I'm still a horrible person because I still bought this t-shirt. I'm still, I'm still fueling something. But yeah. I also understand that I still want to know. And I, and without the media, the, the monarchy doesn't exist. Right. I mean, what's their purpose? Yeah. I don't run a government anymore. You know, they're right. just more of a symbolic they're not, Base. yeah, they're not getting people to come spend money, spend 22 pounds or whatever it is to take a tour of Buckingham Palace. They're yeah. not doing as much. And they're not getting press for the, the good things they want, too. Like, mm-hmm. when they are going to, you know, go to uh, visit the sites of, you know, disasters or battlefields and kind of do their, or do their tours and their goodwill building with other countries... If the press isn't there, you know, then the attention isn't being drawn to those causes. So it really is this double-edged sword, and it's really difficult. And yeah, I mean, like, there's, I think there's clear lines. Like, the whole thing that happened with um, Kate getting the telephoto lens photos, I don't even want to talk about them. That's one thing. It's like, yeah, like, again, but that was kind of like the arc of the swimsuit photo. It's Mm -hmm. like, okay, yeah, but now we have this technology and people are just going to do it. And then it's the fact that the internet is around. So yeah, you can put, you can get an injunction in British papers and British websites, but the, Mm -hmm. that's not going to stop somebody from going onto a French website and seeing the same photos. It's not, it's not like an, text article where if you don't speak French but even if you don't speak French you can run it through Google Translate I mean there's so many things and Mm -hmm. it's just really it's hard in this day and age where it's like what's the point again the newsworthiness I think is the question that to me is not newsworthy Mm -hmm. (sighs) no because it's like I don't need to know that and I don't think she wanted that obviously they don't want that out there no well it's there's a reason why they go to private villas and they have to have this level of seclusion because they're not going they're not afforded normal privacy yeah i mean which comes with benefits yes like they get to wear sweet tiaras they get Mm -hmm. to their job is literally they get to afford to go to private villas exactly they can afford to go to private villas they can use their face and their words to try to make the world a better place I certainly don't have that effect. <laughs> no, this podcast is going to save the I world. Know. Just watch. Just watch. We're going to start a revolution yes. here, and we're going to reinstate the monarchy, Yay. and we're going to put Barack and Michelle on the throne <laughs> of America, or somebody else. I yeah. don't know. I'm open to other suggestions. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it is. It's so hard. This is such a hard topic, and yes. so that's why we wanted. But it's an important one, and yeah. it's something that's been a big part of the royal narrative over the last how many years so yes so yeah i think that wraps it up for us this week as always thank you so much for listening 
And if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics you'd like us to cover or any questions about our opinions on, I don't know, something that is going to be, it has been worn by somebody or I don't know how cute a royal child or dog is. You can reach us at on Gmail at americrowndreams at gmail.com. We are also available via Facebook and Instagram at americrowndreams and on Twitter at americrowndream. Because Twitter has limited our dreams by its character limits, and so it's just a singular dream, unfortunately. But we'll, we'll persist. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye.